Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us on another episode of the All Might Be Edified Discussions on Servant Leadership. I'm Keith Pankow, and I have the amazing privilege to be here with Adam Gearlock. Adam Gearlock is a leadership coach, a student of servant leadership, and a former Division I men's college basketball coach. As a leadership coach, Adam helps leaders to become servant leaders and increase the capacity of individuals to lead. His work with others is a co-creative partnership that provides the time, space, and opportunity for you to learn about yourself so you can serve others in a more life-giving ways and act with greater impact. Adam operates his own leadership coaching practice, Adam Gearlock Coaching, where he primarily works with athletic coaches and student athletes, while also serving as a leadership coach for the Door Institute for New Leaders at Rice University and the coaching company Ama La Vida, where he serves executives and leaders across a variety of organizations. He holds a professional certified coach from PCC, credentials from the International Coaching Federation, and is a certified leadership coach through Rice University's Dower Institute for New Leaders. Additionally, Adam is certified in the EQI 2.0 and EQ360 Emotional Intelligence Assessments and DISC and Motivators Behavioral Assessments to further support clients in their leaders' development. He transitioned into leadership coaching after nearly a decade in men's college basketball, serving as an assistant coach at Rice University and Cornell University. During his time at Cornell University, the program achieved their most successful season in eight years. Adam also writes on a variety of themes connected to servant leadership, often exploring the transforming power of servant leadership and its application in the real world of the harms and negative impacts of leadership embedded in dysfunctional hierarchies and inappropriate powers. His work has been or will be published in the International Journal of Servant Leadership 2022, the Palgrave Handbook of Servant Leadership in 2023, and the Financial Manager Magazine of 2022. Adam is currently a doctoral student at Gonzaga University School of Leadership Studies, my alma mater, where he studies servant leadership and leader development. Adam earned his Master of Arts in Organizational Leadership with a concentration in servant leadership from Gonzaga University and a Bachelor of Arts in History from Rice University. He resides in Spokane, Washington. Well, welcome, Adam. So excited to have you on today. Yeah, thank you, Keith. Uh, it's a pleasure to be with you and be on here today. It's a heck of an introduction. So thank you. Well, I found Adam just searching, you know, LinkedIn, looking at stuff as I was posting some of my content as I developed content for the podcast and different things. And I saw Adam's bio and I saw that he made a transition from coaching to focus a lot more on his passion for servant leadership. And I saw some of the way he writes about servant leadership and his passion for it. And I saw such a desire to be more of a servant leadership that just was like a tractor beam drawing me towards him. So I sent him a request and I said, Hey, Adam, I want to connect. I'm from Gonzaga as well. I just have such a passion for servant leadership. I'd love to reach out, connect, maybe even have you on the podcast sometime. And he was gracious enough to connect with me and say he'd love to talk more about what that looks like. And here we are just a couple months after that. We've had some great conversations and just excited to get his take on servant leadership. He also has put some podcast episodes out there really talking about and introducing the concept of servant leadership in a really clear an amazing way. So we'll give you some links to that in the show notes in different ways. And they're already on the blog for those of you that follow that. So Adam, can you tell us a little bit about that change from coaching to focus more on servant leadership and why you thought that you needed to change your path to do that? Yeah, wonderful. You know, first of all, Keith, so one of the really fun things about LinkedIn and the Gonzaga alumni network and maybe like the servant leadership 
community as well as it like provides these opportunities for us to connect and get to know others and demonstrate the care and curiosity of learning more about servant leadership and you know learning more about serving others and you know moving towards greater meaning in our lives uh, you know greater purpose in our lives and so you know thank you for reaching out first of all and it's been so fun to build that connection and develop a relationship and you know again one of the really neat things about LinkedIn is it provides us the opportunity to do something like that Gonzaga's, you know, program certainly, you know, provided that you know, initial connection and foundation maybe for the relationship as well. So, you know, it's certainly a lot of fun. I coached Division One men's college basketball for, you know, again, nearly a decade with time at Rice University and Cornell University. And it's this really awesome opportunity to impact student athletes at a, at a really critical point in their development. You're working with 18 to 22, you know, 23 year olds, like, wow, what a really fun opportunity. It's also really stressful and really full profession, let's say. Men's college basketball calendar goes round the clock. It's a two-semester sport in the fall and the spring, and then recruiting moves right through the summer. You know, in the fall, you know, we're recording on April 13th. The Final Four was a couple of weekends ago with the national championship crowned, and college basketball coaches are moving right into recruiting, especially with the transfer portal now, and, you know, nearly 20% or over 20% student athletes changing programs from one year to the next. I think it, the the latest statistics are like five per team end up transferring schools per year. It was not that way when I was in college basketball. And certainly the Ivy League has a little bit of a different model. They have a little bit less transfers, you know, but when I was there, I experienced a real shift in my values and priorities. You know, I was a, a young coach at the time or a younger individual at the time and experienced a shift in my values and priorities and just felt my mission and purpose growing in a different sort of way. I saw the opportunity to serve others in kind of a broader capacity and saw that there wasn't uh, necessarily, you know, a space or individuals moving that forward in a college basketball space in terms of uh, leader development. I saw as a young coach, um, you know, working to move up in the profession that a lot of the leader development programs were actually career development disguised as leader development. So, you know, how do you network? How do you move up the ladder? How do you go from being an assistant coach to a head coach, et cetera? And those are all inward facing stances of leadership. They provide an easy opportunity for leadership to become embedded in oneself um, or an ego or power drive or inappropriate ambition when those are the leader development messages received. Similarly, for student athletes, I saw the lack of leader development opportunities provided for student athletes as well, that it was all you know relegated within you know, whatever, you know, training programs or coaching staff had developed, which were oftentimes, you know, haphazardly put together, despite the really well intentions of basketball coaches as well. But unfortunately, it's left to individuals like myself, who when I was 25 or 26 was kind of ill-equipped to do that. So sensing that shift in values and priorities, seeing my own vision for leadership change, that shift in values and priorities resulted in my own vision for leadership changing. Leadership became much less about me, much more about others that shift towards servant leadership away from self-embeddedness. And then seeing the tremendous opportunities that there were to serve coaches, student athletes, athletic programs, you know, in much more life-giving ways and providing a leader development experience that, you know, served others and supported their growth as persons. So that's kind of how that shift and transition took place. I really love that. And it's such a beautiful thought. I was thinking as you were talking about one of the things you just really nailed so well. And I think this transcends even the sporting world. And 
And I think it's true to my worldview in the military career life, and I think it would be true to many civilian organizations as well, is that so many leadership programs, like you said, are disguised. I can't remember exactly how you set up, but these career yeah. growth experiences are disguised as leadership growth experiences, and they're very yeah. inward-facing, right? And so- yeah. I just really thought that thought was perfectly phrased the way you said it, and I butchered it. I sorry, I apologize for that. You should rewind it and listen to the way Adam said it because it was much better and concisely said. Another thing I thought about, even dialing back into the sports world and not just college basketball, but I think about these NIL deals and the way that we're seeing much more movement in college sports. And if these coaches continue to be inward facing and if these programs don't change, in my mind, I think there's an avenue for servant leadership in the sporting world to grow, to keep those athletes wanting to stay a part of their teams. And I was curious if you had any thoughts on what that could look like or if that could help athletes stay situated on their teams longer, despite these big money deals that are flying around. Absolutely. So let's take both of those things, right? You know, as maybe as society as a whole, we've kind of coupled leadership with rank status in a hierarchy and leadership and servant leadership, especially as it's been conceived by Robert Greenleaf has nothing to do with one's status in a hierarchy. I think we would be well served to decouple career development from leader development because those are two different things. The skills of moving up a hierarchy of networking, of like political power, of, you know, resume building or public speaking, you know, these are all maybe skills or capacities that are on the side of career development, you know, maybe even social media management and things like that. Those are all on the side of career development that might not connect with serving others in a way that supports their growth as persons, that supports developing team cohesion, you know, delegation, whatever skills of leadership that we're looking at. These are often two very different things. So it's, I think it's important to decouple them. And when we do, maybe there's a natural progression towards things that are more affiliated with servant leadership, listening, empathy, commitment to the growth of others as people. And whereas if we're only focused on our own career objectives, all of a sudden we move towards different skills and capacities that maybe go away from serving others. But you highlight a really great point as well of you know, NIL. And, you know, certainly I think a lot of coaches would look at that as responsible for the large number of, you know, relational fractures, transfers that we're seeing in men's college basketball coaching and college athletics as a whole. And it's really easy to say, oh, well, we're being tampered with and they're being offered more money. And like all of those things are true. The stories that I hear, the stories that are out on social media and from journalists are absolutely wild in terms of you know, what's going on behind the scenes for student athletes to be in a position where they're making money off of their name, image, and likeness. But I think it also alludes to the fact that the job of a college basketball coach has become increasingly more complex in the last five years than it ever has been before. NIL is just one representation of that. I mean, whereas previously, one's conceptions of leadership could be more rigid, more focused on the self and, you know, maybe do as I say, more focused on power and control. You know, now student athletes have options. They can transfer, they can leave. And so I think we're seeing you know, that manifests itself in the large number of transfer rates. Transfer rates were on the rise in exponential growth before NIL as well as transfer restrictions loosened. And so I think it speaks to maybe the harm and some of the relational fracture that's occurring in men's college basketball through a more, uh, through a vision for leadership that's more centered in ego and power and control of the head coach or the coaching staff 
and less centered in the growth of student athletes as persons. Yeah, that's a great thought. I love the way you took both those questions one-on-one because there's some great content that you provided there. And I want to start with the first one, decoupling career growth and all the things that come along with it and the different aspects there that can often be harmful to leadership growth there because I think you're on to something there that leadership training and learning is often very different. And when we combine those two, we do a lot of things that are harmful to creating a positive atmosphere to building great leaders. And especially the leaders that when we move to that second question, create an atmosphere that makes people want to stay. We've often heard that common saying that talks about people don't quit their organizations, they quit their leaders. And we hear it all the time, but we don't do anything about it. We continue to keep bad managers around. I won't call them leaders because we know that they're bad. They're not really a leader. And we keep them around or we advance them or we let them. And we talk often about failing up in my organization. We say, why do we let people fail up? in the organization because that just continues to harm the organization. And in the military, it's interesting. We've been talking a lot about most of the branches of the military have a recruiting challenge right now. Every single branch of the military, with the exception of, I think, of the United States Marine Corps, all of them except the Marine Corps, have missed their recruiting marks. And so everyone's talking about it. But the the branch that focuses the most on leadership training is the Marine Corps. Hmm. And it's interesting now, I don't have any good data to talk about, you know, some good research, so I'm not going to, but I would quickly say that we don't have a recruiting problem. We have a leadership problem. We have, we're losing people and we're not attracting people because the people that are leaving aren't telling a good story. The people aren't staying because they don't, they're not attracted to the leaders around them. And so I think that similar to what you're saying about the transfer rates rising ahead of time. There wasn't an atmosphere that was attracting people to stay in those environments because if there were, they they would have stayed. And so I know you've done some amazing writing in your path. And I know you recently sent me an article that I haven't had the chance to review yet, but I think it's got some potential for what we're talking about titled Love and Basketball. And we're going to share it in the show notes because I want to read it. And I think it's going to be powerful to a lot of you. Now, what do you think about increasing love in the basketball environment. What do you think about that thought and how it could change that environment to keep people wanting to stay? And I think even in all of our organizations. Yeah. You know, a, a couple of thoughts come up for me when, you know, when I, you know, listen to your question, you know, Keith, and listen to some of your reflections, again, to reinforce decoupling career development and leader development, you know, for better or for worse, all of us, a lot of us, I've had experiences where individuals above us in a hierarchy, we've looked to them as bad leaders. You know, we didn't grow under them, whatever it might be. So like, that's all, quote unquote, all the evidence that we might need to say, hey, career development and leader development are two very different things. And yet we continue to invest in that path of career development, which is very worthwhile. Like it's important to be in a position of quote unquote power, let's say, but a power that then you know, has greater meaning and purpose that expands the capacity of those led rather than diminishes the the capacity of those led. Uh, again, an, an inherent concept to servant leadership, you know, and it would be the charge of the servant leader to be increasingly self-reflective as well to say, what am I doing that's creating or contributing to these challenges that I'm experiencing? You know, maybe the path of ego embedded leadership would be trying to focus more on recruitment and on trying to like propose 
or paint a positive picture to try to say like, no, the problem isn't us. We just need to paint a more positive picture to be more focused on reputation, let's say, or more focused on outward facing measures than on the inward facing everyday realities of the people that around us. That's the beauty of servant leadership is the power isn't in our hands as leaders. The power is in those that are around us. You know, you know, can they legitimately say that being around me or the leader that they become wiser, healthier, freer, more autonomous, better able to serve others? Well, if they can, then typically the, you know, recruitment challenges or whatever challenges that there are, you know, will be solved because that's a place that people inherently want to be. So what might that look like? in action or in a college basketball program or in an organization. There's an increasing body of research around the the roles of that emotional content or emotional cultures play in organizational or, or team life. Emotional content or emotional cultures refer to the emotions that are present in an organization, in a group, in a relationship. You know, how much of those emotions are present, what other emotions are present, you know, as well. And emotional content or emotional cultures, you know, typically in organizations or in teams, we think of cognitive or behavioral cultures. You know, these are like the messages that are on the wall, the values, the mission, all those sorts of things. That would be the cognitive element. Uh, Behavioral cultures are what people do. Oftentimes we're really focused on that too. You know, there's a phenomenon called emotional contagion, which is where our emotions, just by being in the presence of one another, impact each other, Keith. And they impact each other, not just through the words that are spoken, but also through all these biological mechanisms that are typically unconscious. You know, my emotions not just don't just impact your emotions, they also impact your cognitions and your behavior. So if there's anything that we're going to study in an organization or a relationship, maybe what's most important to study, or there's a case to be made, that's what's more important to study rather than the cognitions and rather than the behavior are the emotions or that the cognitions and behavior are just a representation of the emotions. A researcher in particular that's you know done a lot of this brilliant work, her name is Sigal Barsade. Unfortunately, she passed away last year, I think, due to uh, brain cancer. She was a brilliant researcher at Penn. Um, she's done a lot of research on emotional contagion in organizational life. She, along with uh, another co- a colleague, Olivia O'Neill, also looked at the impact of an emotional culture of companionate love in a long-term care setting, so a health facility, and they looked at it. Uh, it was a longitudinal study, so they looked at it over time. Companionate love, you know, they define it as care, affection, compassion, and tenderness. So looking at the emotions of care, affection, compassion, and tenderness, and they found that it was correlated, those emotions were correlated with all these positive outcomes for the employees in that long-term care setting greater satisfaction, more engagement, less emotional exhaustion, better teamwork. So all these really wonderful things that, you know, as leaders, I think we typically say that we want in our organizations. There was also a positive outcome for the patients. The the patients had better quality of life and better health outcomes being in this atmosphere or being in this emotional culture of companionate love, again, care, affection, compassion, and tenderness. There was also a third ripple effect too. So we have the employees, we have the patients, and there was a third ripple out to the families of the patients. They also experienced more satisfaction and more positive emotions, you know, with their relatives, with their family members being in this long-term care setting. You know, there's a large connection that would say that we, we would be well-pressed to create these uh, environments or these atmospheres or these emotional cultures of companionate love in our teams, in our organizations, uh, maybe in our families, in our lives. 
You know, they looked at it on the flip side as well. Oftentimes you might think of the flip side or we might conceptualize the flip side of these emotional cultures as, you know, cultures of fear, anger, disgust, and contempt. You know, we might think of, tend to think of those as the opposite of companionate love, and particularly maybe in military contexts, as you well know, Keith, or athletic contexts, fear, anger, disgust, contempt, like looms really large. There's a popular college basketball podcast uh, by CBS that I listened to. And, you know, one of the hosts was saying that, you know, his like five-year-old son asked him one day, like, hey, why do basketball coaches have to be so angry all the time? <laughs> so even a five-year-old can pick up that there's a lot of anger uh, in college basketball. And oftentimes, you know, they would say, oh, well, we need to hold student athletes accountable. Well, you know, shockingly enough, according to Seagal Barsade, never has a culture of fear, anger, disgust, or contempt positively related with employee accountability. So the path to accountability is emotional cultures of companionate love. The last part of this is even more disastrous than fear, anger, disgust, and contempt uh, would be indifference instead. Indifference is viewed in the literature as the opposite, uh, care, affection, compassion, and tenderness. The example cited here was, you know, uh, an employee's you know, mother had passed away. She had been with this organization for 30 years and she went to her supervisor and told her supervisor the situation. And her supervisor said, I don't have the time to deal with. I have a staff that deals with it. And so indifference, that indifference holds much more negative outcomes than even, than even the lack of correlation to accountability of fear, anger, disgust, and contempt. So there's a lot there. You know, there's more that we can dive into as well, but I know I just threw a lot at you. So I'll, I'll stop and pause here. Yeah, there's so much there and it's some powerful stuff. And I was thinking about so much while you're talking about it. And it's interesting, even in the military, I think we have different cultures within our different occupational settings in the military. And we talk about it. I was laughing as you talked about coaches because we joke about our different career paths in the military. And we know, you know different career paths are more prone to that anger and contempt than others. And we'll talk about the, you know, them eating their own or in the Navy. I was in the Navy before the Coast Guard. They have the surface warfare officer, which they the acronym for that is SWO. And they literally say you just got SWOed, meaning you just got stabbed in the back. It's it's mm. a phrase they say all the time. And Navy officers expected in that community. And so, and not that they're all like that. That's just a phrase, right? So but it's it's just prone to that. And I think you're absolutely right. Like people in those environments are more prone to not accountability. They're more prone to hide things or keep things in and not be them their true selves. And I shared an article in the last podcast episode, but I think it's relevant to what you're sharing now. And I think even as we looked at a lot of the the situations we're seeing in some of our racial tensions right now in our country is we talk about uh, Captain Kennedy. He wrote this article, which I shared in the last episode show notes about as an African-American male, and he's a senior officer in the Coast Guard, that he you know, he felt like he couldn't share his feelings about how he felt about those things. And he's a senior officer, African-American male. And if he, as a senior officer, if he can't share his feelings, you know, what, what about our junior members? They probably, they're not sharing their feelings if a senior person doesn't feel like they can. And, you know, we have to change the environment if that's what we're doing, because we've created this environment where people don't even feel like they can bring their emotions there. And if what you're saying is true, that if we feed off of that, then we don't have to just share our emotions to feed off and we can sense emotions. That's inherent in our ability, right? I think 
probably some of the research speaks to that. It wasn't just people talking about emotions. And so, yeah, yeah. I mean, in the next part of that, that's really interesting too, Keith is, you know, there was another, you know, study that looked at high performing teams and organizations, medium performing teams and organizations, low performing teams and organizations. Uh, this one was by Losada and Hefe uh, in 2004, I believe. And, you know, performing here is defined by like outcomes, satisfaction within the team, you know, financial outcomes as well, you know, customer retention, and then like, who did peers say were the best performing teams or not. So lots of different measures to look at performance here. And they found that the lowest performing teams had the smallest emotional range. So like the emotions that were expressed, like the number of emotions that were expressed, how many emotions that were expressed and like where they were on a scale of positive to negative and uh, how strong they were. The smallest emotional range was characteristic of low performing teams. These were uh, emotions that were often and these were characteristics that were often, you know, focused on self uh, and advocacy. So arguing my point rather than inquiry, being curious and asking questions, you know, about somebody else, you know, so it's this very inward facing stance, let's say. So there's something that's happening here that, you know, leaders are creating that environment. We can get into some of that later, but, you know, oftentimes you might in high performance contexts, we say, Hey, we need to shut off to emotions and there's no place for emotions in the workplace. The research says that the lowest performing teams has the smallest emotional range. You know, that doesn't mean that we just then take this and go into our workplaces and just wildly express emotions all over the place. Then maybe there's, you know, more of a case for emotional intelligence in our organizations as well to express these, um, let's say in life giving ways, you know, or ways that are valuable for both ourselves and others, you know, but I think that's, you know, really critical piece of research that, you know, lowest performing teams, lowest emotional range, medium performing teams, medium emotional range, highest performing teams, highest emotional range, both in terms of positive and negative that are expressed and like, you know, how much of it is expressed and like where it is on the spectrum too. That's so fascinating. And just, you know, I think this is interesting too, from my own experience, the Coast Guard, it, you know, they, they see some value in emotions because we have all this training designed around not allowing trauma to bottle up our emotions. We do critical mm -hmm. stress incident management. We do all this specialized training, which Captain Hannity, and I want to clarify, Captain Hannity is not the fault for not sharing his emotions. We created this environment that prevented him from feeling he was safe to share his, emo his emotions. I want to be very clear about that. And his article is really very articulate in sharing this, but we do all this training after a major traumatic event for a search and rescue for the team's that had, you know, whether they couldn't save a life in time or, or even if it was a really traumatic search and rescue, we, or some big case that was, we do specialized training for those teams because we know inherently that we have to do something so that they don't bottle those emotions up. So we, there's some part of our organization that gets these principles for trauma, but not for everything else. And it was interesting, Captain Haney talked about this when we had the government shutdown and the Coast Guard went month a month or so without getting paid. We did counseling for that. We did all this stuff to make sure that we were checking in with people. I think your comments on indifference was very powerful to me because I think sometimes we don't know how to take on very complicated and complex issues. And so we default to indifference, which is very, very dangerous and I think with race relations or some of these more complex issues, we've defaulted to indifference a lot of times. 
And I'll give an example for the for the Coast Guard and other military organizations. We often say things like, "We all bleed Coast Guard blue. We're all we're all wear blue," and that's a sense of indifference because with my African American brothers and sisters that serve in the organization, I've now relegated their feelings, their sense of inequity, inequality to indifference. I've told them that they don't have value expressing those opinions or those feelings. And what what I've done is I've treated them almost dehuman in their feelings. I've taken all the emotion out of it, which I think goes to what Adam was saying here, because if I would have showed them anger or contempt, I would at least given them a human response. But by showing them indifference and not intentionally in, in the Coast Guard response in my example, and I share that example on purpose, not because I think the Coast Guard is malicious or wrong completely. It's because I think even when we are trying to do the right thing, if we're not acting out of a sense of love for the individuals around us, like Adam's trying to teach us, we're not going to reach them at their level and we're going to lose some great individuals. And it's not going to be for these big money deals that the NIL is throwing at college athletes. We're going to lose them a lot quicker than that. And so I I just applaud Adam for talking about these things in a college sports atmosphere that I think we can, that transcends that atmosphere to some of our other atmospheres. And uh, any other thoughts you have on that, Adam? Yeah, you know, you bring up some really incredible points, Keith, and really incredible points of, you know, self-awareness there as it relates to, you know, maybe uh, how organizations seek to create monocultures you know, we're going to bleed blue or maybe in an athletic setting, you know, you have to think this sort of way uh, that ends up actually dehumanizing individuals. The question that comes up for me, you know, as I listen to you is like, what is the responsibility of the leader in some of these examples that you highlighted? Certainly, I would highlight that it's not one of like processing another individual's trauma, like leaders probably aren't equipped to do to deal with that in a super healthful sort of way. You know, that is should be the is and should be the range of mental health professionals. And if it's to the point of trauma, you know, maybe to the range, uh, maybe in the realm of leadership coaches, if it's, you know, less uh, or, or coaches in some regard, if it's less um, to the extent uh, of trauma. But how does a leader then, you know, like not create dehumanizing action, but creates, you know, life giving or humanizing sorts of relationships want, right? It would go to, you know, to listening to empathy, you know, really working to, you know, be with the person on their level, you know, having conversations around um, how, you know, my actions as a leader are impacting those around me um, with those individuals seeking forgiveness, looking to engage with them about how I can be with them in more life-giving ways as well. So I think about and creating maybe instead of you know, quote unquote, a family is what we typically hear in college athletics context, which we can, you know, maybe go into that a, a little bit further, you know, your families, you know, we, you know, we all know the divorce rates in uh, America and, you know, families not being super healthful atmospheres or environments all the times, but maybe looking to build a community instead, you know, one based on mutual service and giving to one another. Um, and maybe that building that community where individuals are, you know, are de- developing full and healthful and humanizing relationships would be the path forward to some of those more healthful responses. But that might be a responsibility of uh, of the leader in these sorts of situations where, you know, high emotions uh, are on guard, making sure that there's support. So, you know, those traumas can be dealt with in healthful ways and seeking to build community in one's organization and one's team through mutual service and giving to one another. 
So great. Some wonderful thoughts you just keep throwing out on us. I'm going to have to listen to this content over and over again, Adam. I just love that you continue to go back to thinking about the way you phrase things with the people that are around you. In in today's world, you know, we talk about in a work setting that family isn't always the right context to to center everything around for a lot of different reasons, but it's interesting. We can go back to many of us don't come from the greatest families. And so family isn't always the greatest thing to center around just from my own background. I can tell you, if you're going to model your team after my family, you're setting yourself up for failure. The family that I grew up in, my my current family is amazing. So it, it depends on what family I'm going to use as my reference point for that family as I'm moving forward, right? And so when I was at Gonzaga, one of the themes that I really gravitated towards, and so I loved Adam's words, were creating a community in a multicultural environment. And, you know, really to do that, what I learned is you had to learn all the cultures and subcultures of everybody that you're trying to build that community with. And that takes a lot of work. It takes listening and empathy that Adam talked about, but it takes really caring, really loving. And I think what I didn't understand until I sat down and started to learn some of these thoughts that Adam's been teaching me is it takes recognizing the emotions that come along with those because it's really easy to think that one person represents an entire community so that you met somebody from any given community and then you go to the next person and you hear them mention that given community again and you think, oh, I've already learned about that community. But you've only learned a portion of that community. So be careful when you think you've understood someone else's community. You're learning it again from a new perspective. And that takes another set of listening with empathy and love. Uh, Very well said, Keith. Yeah. All right. We went a totally different direction than I thought we were going to go today. So we're going to have to scrap a bunch of our questions, but I've loved this conversation. One question I really want to ask you today as we start to think about unwinding down is when you work, the people you work with as a coach today, how do you help them incorporate servant leadership into their life? And what is it about servant leadership that really makes you want to build more servant leaders? Wonderful. I'm just thinking about those two questions because there are two questions and two very different ones. So maybe I'll touch on the first one first, and that might look at how you know maybe I get to that second question. So what about servant leadership makes me want to build more servant leaders? Was I hearing that question correctly uh, yeah. from Keith? Yeah. Yep. So first is like it's inherent in the definition. Uh, let's say you know servant leadership asks you know as conceptualized by Robert Greenleaf, it asks. Do those served grow as persons? Do they, while being served, become healthier, wiser, freer, more autonomous, better able themselves to serve to serve others? And what's the impact on the least privileged in society? Will they benefit or at least not be further deprived? You know, Greenleaf also touches on the difference between the servant first and the leader first. The leader first being someone who, you know, acts out of the need to assuage ego, an unusual power drive or inappropriate ambition, or to acquire material possessions. And it highlights the difference between the leader first and the servant first manifests itself in the care taken by the servant first to serve others' highest priority needs. So inherent in the definition of servant leadership in my own kind of change in meaning and purpose that I highlighted, you know, earlier in my in, in my life, 
you know, resulted in my definition of leadership becoming less about me, you know, more about others. You know, I think there's so much richness uh, in, you know, life lived in, in service and in relationships and provides meaning to our lives and makes the world a, a quote unquote better place uh, as well. I think the in their book, The Book of Joy uh, by uh, the Dalai Lama and, you know, the late great Archbishop Desmond Tutu, they highlight that our life's greatest joys are lived in loving and caring relationships with others. From my perspective, as it's been conceived by Greenleaf, you know, servant leadership is one that holds relationships and the transformative power of relationships for both ourselves and for others and the world around us, you know, to become a, a better place. I think, you know, part of that shift in my journey was stumbling across this field of quote unquote professional coaching. I put it up in quotes because as an athletic coach, those are professional coaches as well. The world of executive leadership coaching that's uh, aligned with the International Coaching Federation, the ICF, you know, this is widely referred to as quote unquote, the world of professional coaching. I put it in quotes because again, athletic coaches are very much professional coaches themselves as well, but it's inherently this like other focused profession. And when I discovered and stumbled upon this field of, you know, executive and leadership coaching, I saw it as a way for me to live out my new vision for leadership, one that was less about me and more about others aligned with servant leadership every day through what I do. You know, there are competencies and skills that are focused on the growth of others as persons. It's about building trust and safety and relationship and evoking awareness and facilitating their growth beyond just, you know, the one situation. And so, you know, I think if we're servant leading, then we're coaching in some way. And probably if we're coaching, then we're servant leading as well. You know, the nature of coaching is that it's a, a quote unquote professional coaching as it's been, you know, conceptualized by the ICF and others is that it's a journey about being uh, alongside a client. And, you know, they're focused on what they want to achieve and I'm focused on them and what's actually in between where they are and where they want to go. And very rarely is it like more skills or like technical challenges. Oftentimes we think that it's these technical capacities of more knowledge or more information. In that case, like telling would be or teaching would be really useful. But oftentimes it's, you know, the, you know, we're as leaders, we're facing unknown challenges with unknown situations. And so, you know, what's required is, you know, a different sense of self, you know, greater confidence, a broader and different perspective, whatever it might be. So in a coaching relationship with a client, whether that's uh, an athletic coach, a student athlete, a student or an executive you know, there isn't some sort of like servant leadership education for me, let's say that these are the things to be a servant leader. And even if they were, it's, you know, very likely that they would be applied less effectively than if they were to come to them on their own. Certainly some suggestions or invitations from me can be helpful, but the large scale part of the work is focused on creating, let's say a, a leadership best self. You know, again, there's a lot of research on neuroscience, particularly from this individual, Richard Boyatzis, who looks at us in two, you know, looks at two emotional states uh, in ourselves, the negative emotional attractor and the positive emotional attractor. The negative emotional attractor is one in which we're in a fight or flight response is typically negative emotional reactions of, you know, again, fear, criticism, disgust, contempt, et cetera. And it engages this neurological reaction in our body where we shut down, our vision gets focused, we're less likely to, to, to learn. And it's kind of this performance orientation. 
that state is really associated with what the literature calls a quote unquote ought self. So our conceptions of what we think we need to be based on society, based on others, based on our mentors. That's why mentorship can really be unhelpful sometimes for leader development is that it results in us adopting an, uh, an ought self, which literally shuts down, which engages the negative emotional attractor, which shuts down learning, growth, development. Instead, we want to look at an ideal self, which engages what's called the positive emotional attractor, which is, again, this learning orientation. Our body, our nervous system is in the parasympathetic response, so much more open to possibilities. Our awareness is literally broadened as well. More positive emotions are engaged, joy, uh, contentment, satisfaction, um, optimism, hope, etc., interest, gratitude, a bunch of other positive emotions. And this supports us in being able to learn. And so a lot of the work with a client is really focused on the creation, let's say, of a leadership best self, an ideal self that provides maybe a roadmap for future growth and development. It's a tremendous starting point. It's not the end of the journey, but now with a an ideal self, there is a filter to interpret quote unquote negative feedback or deficits that come in. We're able to see the way that would, which we're not aligned with our ideal selves and then focus on growing and developing and learning those skills and capacities so we can fulfill a mission and purpose a, a little bit better. Most of the time, we don't think about and sit down and develop a leadership best self you know, or a best self in general for ourselves, right? It comes maybe later in our lives or at a critical inflection point of development. We're able to see what we want for ourselves, our lives, others, you know, et cetera. Um, and so that really intentional work about creating a leadership best self is really uh, important if we're to grow and develop um, as leaders and people. And it sets the stage for future growth and development. So that's a key factor of a coaching engagement. There's also a lot of work around you know, emotional intelligence assessments and you know, things that set the foundation for the relationship in addition to just you know, coaching around you know, what's happening for the individuals that are important in their work and lives and supporting them and making meaning of those circumstances and how they want to move forward with them in their lives so they can become better leaders. But that transition, that creation of the leadership best self, you know, again, if it's focused on you know, leadership, away from self-abandonedness, typically it's engaging in other-centered behaviors, which are inherently tied to servant leadership. So maybe that's the path from coaching my servant leadership education to helping others become servant leaders is that it adopts all of these other-centered behaviors that tangentially touch different conceptions of servant leadership um, as it's been conceived by Greenleaf. Yeah, I love that. And I that pulls me to the challenge for this episode. I I just love that thought so much that I want to take the challenge. So I want to give this challenge to have everyone take some time to think about what your leadership ideal self looks like and jot down some thoughts. You draw a picture if you need to. Draw Get as creative as you need to with that to conceptualize as one of those great characteristics is of servant leadership, conceptualize what your leadership ideal self looks like. And if you feel free enough, share them. Share some of those thoughts on any of the social media or sites that you follow the podcast on. All right. Well, I think we're about done. Any final thoughts to wrap us up with here, Adam? Uh, a beautiful exercise that you left listeners with. Thank you so much for you know adding that in, Keith. Thank you so much for the opportunity. It's been a pleasure to visit with you here today and 
dive into and discuss servant leadership. As you can tell, I probably you know geek out on a lot of these elements and a lot of the things that are underneath the surface. So it's been a really life-giving conversation for me. I hope it's been for you as well, Keith. And it's just been such a joy and a pleasure for me to you know be with you here today. Same. I have loved it. I feel like I met a kindred spirit when I found you on LinkedIn that day and I could have kept going. It felt like we were only talking for five minutes. So, but we don't want to lose listeners too much. So we might have to have you come back and we'll dive into all these other topics. Cause I think we only made it down like one or maybe two bullet points on our list of potential topics today. Cause we just kept going. So it was a wonderful conversation and thanks everyone for joining us. Please share this podcast to someone who you think might be edified by it. And thanks again for joining us on another episode of the All Might Be Edified discussions on servant leadership and have a wonderful day. 